0: Good to see everybody this morning. Let's take our Bibles and open them up to Isaiah 42. It's my great privilege this morning to be able to teach from what is one of the absolute pinnacle passages of the Old Testament. Isaiah 42, we've been working our way from Isaiah 40 through 66, and sort of just at the start of this journey, some of these passages we're going to have to work through slowly, and then we'll get to other sections that will pick up the pace a little bit. We'll cover a couple of chapters in a session, whereas today we will be lucky to work our way through the first nine verses, but my goal is to get through uh, the first 12 verses. We're in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah 42, Isaiah is about in the middle of your Bible, and uh, it's uh, 66 chapters long, so uh, if you just kind of do the flip thing, you should hit it pretty quick, Um, and uh, there you go. All right, let's uh, read, let's pick up our reading, Isaiah 42, and let's read through verse 12, and, uh, and then we'll pray and get going. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the habitants of Sila sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Father, would you give us grace to understand this passage today? Would you help us to know your mind? Help us as we unfold this remarkable passage, spoken so many centuries before this servant came on the scene. Help us to marvel at the wisdom in it, and of the comfort and truth contained therein. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, these are words written in about 700 B.C. We've been working through Isaiah 40 through 66. And what we learned is that Israel is going to be carried away by Babylon in 597 B.C. So these words, we're not exactly sure when exactly they were written. Isaiah didn't time stamp them when he recorded them. He was alive about 100, 110 years, whatever, before these people were carried off into exile. And what God is saying is, when you get carried off into exile, there are certain comforts I have for you. I am going to provide a deliverer. Now, he's going to tell us about two deliverers. One deliverer that's near, and another deliverer, That's far. Last week, we learned about this deliverer who's near. We said that he remained anonymous, and Isaiah is going to uh, keep his name out of discussion for a while yet. But then, when it comes time, he's going to call this person out by name 150 years in advance. Now, there's another deliverer, who's coming far. And it's that deliverer that Isaiah starts talking about here. And believe it or not, this deliverer, this person, begins to take a central role in the book of Isaiah. Now, how many of you have ever heard of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah? How many of you have heard of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah? This is the first of four servant songs. If you want to write them down in your Bible, that might be very helpful. In fact, I like, if I have a, a Bible with margins in it, this is what I like to do. I like to take the first one and say, first of four servant songs, and then list the next three so that in the future, when you come across this, you can go read about them. Okay? The other servant song is in Isaiah 49. The third one is Isaiah 50, and the fourth is servant song bridges two chapters Isaiah 52 13 through 5312. Okay? Isaiah 5213 through 5312. You can the the numbers get kind of inverted there so it's easy to remember. But this first servant song is Isaiah 42 1 through 9. The second servant song is Isaiah 49 1 through 6. The third servant song is Isaiah 50 and the uh, fourth and final servant song is Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Each of these songs tells a little different aspect of this coming servant. But what we're going to find out is this servant is actually Yahweh himself. God himself is going to become this servant, this redeemer, this one who's glorified For the ages, this one who Isaiah 53 tells us will bear our transgressions. This one who will introduce a new age of prosperity and peace. There is a deliverer, a servant coming far. So let's just capture very quickly the logic of what Isaiah is saying, and then we'll begin to work through it specifically, okay? Here's what Isaiah is saying. Babylon is going to carry you off. That's prediction number one. Another deliverer, one near, I'm not going to name him yet, he's going to overthrow Babylon and send you back. That's prediction number two. And because of those two unlikely events, which God calls his shot on, he wants you to have the confidence to know that this deliverer who's coming in seven centuries is the true deliverer, and he is who God says he is. The God of history, as we just sung about in Sunday school, is saying, look at how I predicted this. Have confidence in what I've done and everything that I've said about him. If you can believe God's specific prediction of history, then you can believe what he says about this person who's none other than Jesus Christ, this servant that Isaiah is telling us about. Does that make sense so far? Any questions before we move forward? Okay. Now that we've got the logic of sort of the overall scope of these passages, let's look at the logic of Isaiah 42 specifically, okay, so that we can kind of see where it's going. Look and see the word behold, behold, okay? Now, scan your eyes up the page just a little bit to the previous verse. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Now, when Isaiah wrote these words, he didn't write, 41, 29, and then 42, verse 1. This is all lumped together. In fact, it's all part of one poem. So what we see right here is that Isaiah is trying to draw a contrast. He's putting two things on the shelf for us to look at and for us to behold. The first thing, which we covered last time we were in Isaiah, he says, I want you to look at the carved idols. I want you to look at how empty they are. I want you to look at the vain repetition. Look at how useless they are. Look at how pitiful they are at telling the future. Look how pitiful they are in helping anybody. Look at how people pick them up and carry them around. How they make sacrifices to something that doesn't talk back. How they're the ones that get to determine what this God is like. Behold that. Look at that. Think about that for a bit. And once you've realized that it's emptiness, that it's it's vanity. There's no substance to it. Once you come to that conclusion now, turn your attention and behold my servant. You can behold and you can regard all these vain and empty idols that are going to do you no good. And you can say you have a God, but it's no God at all. Instead, behold my servant. And that's what he's drawing our attention to in 42. He's inviting us to behold his coming servant. Okay, Now, what he's going to do is in the first four verses, he's going to tell us about this servant. It's a call to behold his servant. Then in verses 5 through 9 we hear God commissioning his servant. Okay, God says, I want you to behold my servant. And then he starts to talk to his servant, and we get to listen in on how God talks to this future deliverer. Yeah, there's power in that, okay? I want you to imagine if... if um, You were serving in in the army, say. Now, I don't think the army typically does this. In fact, I don't see a circumstance where they would ever do it. But the general calls in all the enlisted men and their commanding officer. And the general says in front of all the enlisted men, this is my commission to your commanding officer. And then he begins to talk to the officer about how he is supposed to lead all these enlisted men. And that way, if the officer gets off track, the enlisted men can call him back to the commission that he has. But in this case, what the Lord is wanting us to do is understand very clearly the commission of this servant. And when we understand this commission, we can see why Jesus does things specifically. Jesus had a commission when he came to this earth. And he took that commission very seriously. And he made choices in his life because he was fulfilling and obeying the commission that we see in Isaiah 42. That's sort of how the logic of this passage goes. Behold my servant. Now you get to listen in on what he's going to do, on what his job is going to be, and then everybody praises. Everybody offers praise, sings worship, sings for joy, the coastlands, which is all the nations, all the people. Now let's do what I. Now that we've got the structure, I, know, I realize we spent a lot of time kind of working through the structure. If you understand the structure, the words take shape. It, how many of you have read through Prophets before, and you get to the end of the chapter, and you're like, I understood every one of those words in isolation, but I didn't understand any of them collected together. Okay, that could be the case with this, right? And so now that we understand the structure of it, let's not understand these words in isolation. Let's see how they're collected together, and I think we'll get a good picture. God says, this is, he's commanding us to look at his servant. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This word, uh, behold, look, gaze at, consider. Uh, He says, this is my servant, in whom... I uphold the word uphold. I I, I don't think we could come up with a better English translation for it, but basically it means to to grab hold of, to take hold of with a strong hand. The sort of of grabbing that if you had a friend who was slipping down a mountain and they were about to be gone and you reached out your hand and you grabbed on and held on tight and pulled him back up. He says, this is the one I've I've grasped with an ironclad grip. My servant, I'm going to hold him. And then we see a string of words that's so important to understand. In whom my soul delights. This is a, a, a word of deep, abiding affection. The apple of my eye, I put my spirit upon him. This is why Jesus was so eager in Matthew chapter 3 to go and submit to baptism with John the Baptist. Do you remember, John fought him on it. John said, "I, I should be baptized by you, not you by me. Jesus said, I want you to relent. I want you to relent, and I want you to do this. He had a commission. He had a job. He goes down into the water. He comes up, and what happens? Heaven tears open. The Spirit you read right here, I put my spirit on him. The spirit takes the form of a dove and alights on him. And what comes next but the thundering proclamation from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom my soul is pleased. So right there in Matthew 3, what God is saying is, everybody behold my son, my servant. This is Jesus. This is telling us what Jesus is going to be like. And right from the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, God is saying, that's the guy. This is the guy. Seven centuries before Jesus came to the earth, we're told what he'll be like. Now, this word chosen, he's, he's my chosen one. This is a kind of a rare word in the Old Testament. It, it refers to being chosen to a specific role. In Psalm 89.4, David is his chosen one. In Psalm 105.6, it's Abraham. Psalm 106.5, it's Moses. 1 Chronicles 16.13, it's Israel. This, is a, these aren't, uh, this isn't a small choosing. This is a big choosing. I've chosen him. He's my beloved one. I put my spirit upon him will move forward he says he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street we're told in Matthew chapter 12 verses 12 and following that this was prominent on Jesus's mind do you remember when he would go places and they would tell him to leave he would Jesus didn't come with a sword he came with words of salvation and grace and peace When the Pharisees came out with clubs to arrest him, he didn't fight back. Peter pulled out the sword, and Jesus, don't you realize, I could have called legions, hundreds of thousands of angels to assist me. They bound his hands. He he held together, with the word of his power, the molecules that made up those bands that held him. At any point in time, he could have said the word and they would have just disintegrated into thin air. He had a mission. He had a commission. This was his job. And he wasn't going to conduct it by force. We're told, this is a really cool component, by the way. Remember when I told you a couple weeks ago that Isaiah's poetry here is the height of biblical poetry? I'm going to show you an example of that in a second. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he won't quench. The idea of a bruised reed, these are just big shoots of grass that grow up along riversides. You've seen them walk with your kids and there's a, there's a, 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 a reed that's bent and fallen over into the middle of the path. When I run on these trails, what do you do with them when you, you come up to them? You grab them and you pull them, don't you? Get out of the way. And do you even think twice about it. And what you don't do is you don't hit it because by the time you go by, it swings back and hits the person behind you. It's the easiest thing. You just rip it and toss it to the side. There will be another one there in a few weeks. This person is so tender and so gentle when he sees something that vulnerable, that vulnerable it's bent and broken and it can't be recovered you've seen that the green on the shoot has turned dark green it's been damaged jesus heals that and restores that he doesn't finish the break he sets it back up and makes it whole a faintly burning wick fire is always a danger especially in the ancient world And if you see a a lamp and the the oil is going out and it's just smoking, it becomes actually more annoying than it is helpful. So you just lick your fingers and put it out until you could get some more oil in that lamp. But this person, no matter how annoying that smoky lamp is, doesn't do that. He doesn't quench it. There's a smoldering ember there and he's going to fan it, and blow it back into life. It says, and here's where you need to do some circling and line drawing in your Bible. It says, he will not grow faint. The word, he will not grow faint, matches with faintly burning wick. It's the same Hebrew root. He will be affected by the fainting of us fainting wicks. But he won't be affected. He'll be in this world, but not affected by it. Though the wick burns faint, he doesn't burn faint, is the idea. It's a perfect tie-in on the poetry. And then when it says, or be discouraged, that's the same Hebrew root as bruised. Okay? Though people try to bruise him and try to dissuade him and try to keep him from accomplishing his mission, though they threaten him with his words and though eventually they strike him, he doesn't he doesn't get bent, he doesn't get broken, he doesn't get bruised. He's impervious to all that the world throws at him, ultimately. And Isaiah is tying that poetry together. He doesn't quench a faintly burning wick, and he doesn't faint. He doesn't burn low. He doesn't break a bruised reed, nor does he get bruised. He's impervious to it okay and he will do this until he will do this work until he establishes justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law Jesus' ultimate goal his ultimate end game is total and complete worldwide redemption Now, Christians will disagree over how exactly that will be accomplished. That's not my job this morning to go into all those differences. All Christians, however, agree that the ultimate end is universal, worldwide righteousness, such that his righteousness is written on our hearts. And the whole world comes to bow at his feet and worship him. Jesus is a servant who redeems all things, all things. He makes all things new. And so, yes, he wants to see people saved and evangelized, but that's a means to an end. That's a means to his worldwide worship, his worldwide redemption. And this is why Christians make it their mission once they're saved to glorify him in every endeavor of their lives, in every endeavor of their life. Because that is the ultimate end of what Christ is after. That's who the servant is. That's who the servant is. Now, Isaiah says, let me commission him in your hearing. Okay? Let me commission him in your hearing. And that brings us to verse 9, the call of the servant. He says that, thus says God the Lord. By the way, just so you know, you'll, you'll hear people say sometimes that, that Yahweh, the word Yahweh, capital L, capital O, R, and D, and God, Elohim, Yahweh and Elohim, are two different people. Um, that could not be farther from the truth. God is Yahweh, and Yahweh is God. And if you just look right here, Thus says Elohim Yahweh. Does that make sense? In Isaiah 42, 5. That's for free. That was a side note, okay? Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens, stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. Okay, so what God does first is he gives his credentials for why he is commissioning. All right, here's why I have the right to commission. I've, I created all this. I've stretched it out. I've given people life. I am the timeless one. I'm the beginning. I'm the middle. I'm the end. I'm, I am the I am. And being such, I have called you in righteousness. And I want you to notice first and foremost that God's commission of this servant is a commission primarily of himself. Look and see right here, four times. He says, "He says, I will take you by the hand. I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people to open the eyes of those who are blind, to bring out those who are in prison. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Right, so what we see right here is God himself is the one who's going to hold his own feet to the fire in upholding this servant. And that is something that Jesus took great comfort in when he was walking on this earth. You can read all through the book of John how Jesus would take great comfort in the fact that I and the Father are one. I don't don't say anything that the Father doesn't tell me to say. I don't do anything the Father doesn't tell me to do. My Father upholds me. My Father glorifies me. My Father glorifies my name. And what Jesus is doing is he's pointing his own people back to God's commissioning of himself to uphold this servant. And we see this perfect triune effort, Father, Son, and Spirit, in the fulfillment of this servant's commission. God puts his Spirit on his Son, and thus they fulfill the commission of the Lord. He says, I will give you as a covenant for the people... A light for the nations to open eyes that are blind. Jesus, when he says, this is the new covenant, what's he pointing to? What's he pointing to? This is the new covenant. What's he pointing to? He's pointing to the bread and the wine, which is what? His body and his blood. I'm the new covenant, Jesus says. This is me. God gives Jesus to us as this new covenant. He's offering us righteousness in Christ. Whereas the old covenant had duties and punishments for when those duties weren't fulfilled. Here's the new covenant. Here's the new covenant. The new covenant is this person goes into jail and gets people out. He says right here, your commission. O servant, and we get to hear this, is to open eyes that are blind so that you'll be a light for the nations. You definitely need to circle that phrase and write down John 9, verses 1 through 5. Jesus was walking along the road and he saw a man who'd been blind from his birth. And the Jews said, Who sinned, this guy or his parents? And Jesus said, Neither. He was born this way so that you would see my glory. And Jesus gave him sight. And then, do you know what he said right after that? You know what he said right after that? Right after he healed a blind man? I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness at all. What is Jesus doing but putting his hand up in the air and saying, I'm this guy from Isaiah 42. I give give eyes to the blind. I'm the light of the world. Jesus brings prisoners out of darkness. Do you think it was an accident in John 18, 39 through 40 that Barabbas, the prisoner, was released and Jesus was hung on a cross? Barabbas. Barabbas. Imagine the warden going and knocking on the prison door. Barabbas, you need to go. How's that possible? You're free. No, no, I'm condemned to die today. Jesus was condemned instead. You're free to go. Now, this obviously isn't scripture, but church history says that Barabbas came to know Christ as his Savior and was a mighty evangelist for the Lord, and I would hope so. We don't know that for sure. But count him among one of the first prisoners to be set free by this servant. And then God commissions himself again. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The former things have come to pass. And this is something new. This is a new thing I'm now telling you about and i'm telling you about them before they happen so that you'll have faith in me now what is the only response we who were the world were the coastlands were the islands that isaiah is talking about here maybe some of you are bloodline jewish people but i doubt it most of us in here are gentiles who've been born again by the spirit of the living god what is the only appropriate response to coming into contact, to coming to saving faith with his servant. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. We live in a desert. Did you know that? We live in the high desert. We're included too. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. The only response To having our eyes open, to being set free from the bondage that our sins had caused us. The only response to coming to faith in God's chosen one, in whom his soul delights, who gave himself as a covenant for us. We brought nothing, he's the one that brought the terms of the covenant. Rejoice, sing a new song, lift your voice in praise. You're delivered. You were in jail. The the, the jail that your sins had caused. You were in the kingdom of the prince of the power of the air and now you're free. You were blind and now you have eyes. You can hear, you can interact with God and you can see things as they truly are. Rejoice. That's the only right response. And you get a chance to do that in just a few minutes. We're going to worship in song. Now, for those of you who are visiting with us, we have a singing rule here at Fellowship Bible Church, okay? Now, it's a rule that I review often because most of the time I ask for the answer, it's wrong. And I'm just going to keep saying it until everybody gets it right. I could wake them up at 2 in the morning and say, what's our, sleep, our singing rule? And they would answer it for me, okay? So I'm going to call on somebody, okay? Let's see here. Kevin. Kevin Parkinson. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I, okay. I'll I'll give you a lifeline. Okay. Colette can answer as well. What is our singing rule at Fellowship Bible Church? Sing loud. <laughs> okay. Who knows our singing rule? Matthew. Sing loud enough to hear your own voice. Sing loud enough to hear your own. Voice. See, I'm not going to grow discouraged or faint. We're going to get this rule down. I'm teasing. <laughs> sing loud enough to hear your own voice. Now, guys, especially men, I say guys, I mean men, how many of you have just sort of been beaten down by people telling you you can't sing and you just, just kind of go like this, just look down at the ground? <laughs> how many of you are like that? Raise them nice and loud. It's okay. Is that you? Well, then you've got to lift your voice up and kind of ruin theirs a little bit, okay? <laughs> okay? You get a chance. I expect... Now, guys, what does this sound like to you? Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. Uh, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. Let the inhabitants sing for joy. Let them shout, shout. Is any of that weak? and soft, and downward-looking, and all of the things we typically, and shame, the things that we can sometimes associate with singing. Absolutely not. Lift up your voices and sing. We get a chance, and uh, we'll we'll obey the word uh, here. Father, thank you so much that you have given us uh, such a bold prediction of who your servant would be and what he would do. We've been set free Our eyes have been opened. And for all eternity, we will lift our voices and thank you for him. It won't seem like a long time. It won't seem like a long time. It will seem like the most appropriate thing to do at that moment. And I pray that now, as we lift our voices in song, that we would shout. We would raise our voices to a fever pitch knowing that we've been redeemed. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.